Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hey, it's Dan. Welcome to another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. Uh, my guest is Jewel, who you may have heard of uh, on the radio, as several tens of millions of people have. And her full name, Jewel Kirchner, am I getting that right? Kilcher. Kilcher. Why, how did I get that so wrong? It's quite all right. Will you forgive it's an me? unusual last name. It's never really said out loud. Uh, yeah, so nobody well ever done for g- attempting it. N- nobody ever <laughs> says your last name. <laughs> What's know. it like to be one of the few people in the world who can go by one name? <laughs> hey, if I can make one name slightly credible, you know, from Barbie to hopefully, you know, whatever, singer-songwriter. I'm, all good. I'm good with it. I mean, well, like you're in the same category with Oprah, Cher. Um, I don't know who else goes in that category. Barbie, come yeah, on. Barbie. I wasn't going to put you in the category with Barbie. Thank you, um, thank you. Uh, anyway, so there are thousands of things to discuss with you, um, but this is a podcast ostensibly about meditation, and a lot of people don't know that this has been a big part of and a moving part of your life. So mm. I want to I want to get into that. With I'm you. excited. Yeah. Although I was, um, I have to say that I was listening to some of your music getting ready for this and it was just I hadn't heard what's the correct title of the name I I want save your soul who will save your soul who will save your soul Mm -hmm. sorry I try not to be dogmatic yes my version (laughs) of your last name uh, which I'm basically I'm going to get everything wrong uh, throughout the podcast I promise you that Um, it just transported me back to when I was in my 20s Mm. like probably sitting in a cafe in uh, Portland Maine with a bad flannel on because nice. Matt Dillon wore one in singles <laughs> nice. uh, you know but like it like is so powerful it takes you right back yeah. it must be such a great feeling to know that your music uh, has such resonance for so many people it was an amazing thing that record was able to do what it did. Um, I was raised in Alaska. My family were pioneers, so they helped settle the state before it was a state. Um, they were on the last ship that left Germany before the Second World War, hiked over glaciers to end up at this beautiful 300-acre piece of property that the government gave them if they promised not to die for a whole winter. <laughs> um, and so I was raised on this homestead. My mom left when I was eight. She just decided not to be a mom, and my dad took over raising us. My dad had really bad PTSD. He had had an abuse of childhood. And then he went to Vietnam. And so when my mom left, he was incredibly trauma triggered, but those words didn't exist then. And so he turned to drinking to try and numb and medicate his feelings. And I took over my mom's place in the act. So I started singing at five with my parents in hotels. Wait, what act? Um, They had an act. They had an act. They sang in hotels for tourists, a dinner show. So my mom left. My dad and I became an act. So I was probably the only fourth grader that went from elementary school right to the bar. (laughs) And I had an up row seat, and I watched how people handled pain. You know, as an eight-year-old, I watched people use relationships, drugs, and alcohol to try and numb and medicate feelings. And as a girl who wasn't looked after very well because my dad began drinking and being abusive – once the divorce happened as he was trying to self-medicate his own pain and anxiety and trauma, I started watching how the people handled pain and I was like, I'm in trouble. And I was able to see a very specific example day after day after day that you can't outrun pain. It doesn't work. So you have original amount of pain and then you start covering up that pain with avoidance tactics. And all it does is add more pain to your life. And it numbs your ability to experience your full range of emotions. And for a young girl who was trying to look out for her safety in bar rooms and precarious situations, I needed my feelings. I needed my wits about me. Mm. Because if we're like a car, your alarm system is your feelings. They tell you when you're doing okay. Your intuition, your gut tell you when something's out of the line. And if you can stay in touch with your feelings, if you can stay sensitive, you can stay in tune with that. You can actually stay safe. Mm. What people often think is I'm safer if I have armor. What it actually does is... It kills your ability to have joy and 
experience joy in your life. So at age eight, I decided never to drink, never to do drugs, and to try and face pain as it came. And I came up with this idea of you can't outrun pain, so try and face it. And I turned to writing, which was my first mindfulness practice. And I noticed every time I sat down to write, I felt calmer. I felt less anxiety, and it took the edge off just enough for a girl who just went through divorce, mom just left, and dad just became abusive and alcoholic. I had plenty of anxiety. Um, But the anxiety lessened every time I wrote. And later, as I developed this practice of writing, it was like having breadcrumbs back to my real self. Because as you grow up and things get more complex as you get older and your relationship, the dynamic with my dad got worse, um, I always was able to see the truth when I wrote. And that's what I call the observer. And so I ended up having a great philosophy teacher. I was very itinerant. We moved around a lot. But I read Descartes, and he said, I think, therefore I am. And if I could alter that just slightly, I would say, I perceive what I think, therefore I am. <laughs> and I realized that if I could perceive I'm sad, I'm something other than sad. I'm the observer of sad. If I could perceive I'm, perceive I'm anxious, I'm something other than anxious. I'm the perceiver of anxious. And so I got to be very curious about who is the observer? You know, what is observing my thoughts? So if we go back to the idea of your body as a car, as an analogy, your brain isn't the driver, it's the steering wheel. So your observer, you're observing your brain, that's the driver. And so I moved out at 15. I knew statistically kids like me end up repeating the cycle that they're raised by. So I knew statistically I was going to end up in a ditch or on a pole (laughs) or on drugs or in an abusive relationship in short order because that's the emotional language that I was taught. I call it emotional English. I wanted to learn a new emotional English, but there's no school to go to for that. And so I began very consciously at 15 with this task of what I called my happiness project of can I rewire my programming? And something that made me think about it was a bunny that we had growing up. Uh, Its name was Caramel. It was raised with chickens, and it never knew it was a bunny. So since it was a tiny baby bunny, we put it with the chicken coop because it's the safest place for the baby rabbit in Alaska. And it would peck at food like a chicken, and it waddled. It didn't hop normal. And as it grew up, it would lay on the nests for the hens and actually hatch eggs. And when I moved out at 15, it kind of horrified me because I was like, what if I'm a bunny that thinks it's a chicken. Like, how will I ever know my real bunny nature if my nurture was so bad? So if you look at nature versus nurture and you didn't receive good nurture, how can you get to know your real nature? And so those are the things I started trying to figure out and I began to read a lot and experiment a lot and look around for mentors and develop exercises for myself. And I did pretty good. I got myself, I paid rent from age 15. I got myself through school. I graduated school. I ended up going to a pretty good fine arts, an amazing fine arts high school um, on scholarship incredibly anxious All periods. In no, the the school was in Michigan. Okay. Um, I was there on a vocal scholarship. Uh, I started writing songs because you weren't allowed to go to stay on campus for spring break. And I couldn't afford to get back to Alaska because I didn't have any, any money. And so I decided I would hitchhike across the country and street sing and see the United States. And I learned to play guitar for that. And so I started writing lyrics about what I was seeing around me. And Who Will Save Your Soul was the first song I actually ever wrote. I wrote that when I was 16 as I was hopping trains and hoboing and street singing. And I was just making up lyrics about pop culture and American culture and hero worship. Because in Alaska, it's just very different from normal pop culture. I was very separated. I didn't have television growing up. I didn't have radio growing up. And I noticed this idea of people wanting to be a victim and say, somebody else saved me. And I started asking this question, like, how do I save myself? I started having panic attacks when I was 16. Uh, which if anybody out there has ever had a panic attack, your brain literally goes offline. So if you can watch a brain scan of somebody having a trauma, you know, 
a triggering episode. The brain drains out of your processing center and goes all to your fight or flight. So you literally go offline. And so I started creating tools to help myself get my brain back online. Um, And then when I was homeless at 18, I had turned down the advances of a boss. When I wouldn't sleep with him, he didn't give me my paycheck. I couldn't pay my rent. Started living in my car. Didn't think it would last that long. But then my car got stolen. And I had bad kidneys. I was sick all the time. I almost died in the emergency parking lot of a of emergency room because they wouldn't see me because I didn't have insurance. Probably not illegal, but I'm mean, probably not legal. But that's what went down. A doctor ended up seeing me get turned away, and he saved my life by giving me antibiotics and his business card, and he treated me for free and saved my life. But that's how I ended up homeless, and I was homeless for a year, and I started shoplifting a lot. My panic attacks came back with incredible force. I was started to be agoraphobic, where I couldn't leave the street corner I was on or the, the car that I was living in without thinking I was going to be stricken by illness, you know, completely irrationally. And I was in the mirror one day in a dressing room trying to steal a dress, and I looked at myself and I went, oh, I failed. I'm a statistic. I didn't beat the odds. You know, at 15, I set out to not be a statistic, and three short years later, my life came to a grinding halt, and I was a statistic. I was going to end up in jail or dead in short order. And so I went back to my, the word mindfulness wasn't even around back then, but I went back to this idea of how can I look at nature versus nurture and rewire my brain. And I noticed that the brain was addictive. I noticed as I looked through my journals and my writing that I was very addicted to negative thought. And I remember this quote by Buddha that happiness doesn't depend on who you are or what you have. It depends on what you think. And I had the distinct distinct pleasure of having only what I thought left. I had no family no house, no food, nothing to distract me, if you will. I was alone with my thoughts. And so I decided to figure out what was I thinking. And that's where I went back through my journals, and I was shocked at how negative I was. And I learned about fear that year and how fear is this thief that takes the past and it projects it into the future. And it robs you of the only opportunity you have to actually change your life, which is right now. And that's the most powerful moment that you have as a human being. That's what separates us from the animals. And being homeless, I felt, reduced me to being animal because every moment was, how do I be safe? How do I get food? How do I get water? How do I get shelter? Period. You have no time to actually physically manifest thought, be creative. And to be able to create change in your life, you actually have to be present enough, not in a fear cycle, so you can do something different today than you did yesterday. And so I started observing my thoughts, and I didn't know how to at first because I didn't have the skill set. Uh, So I started watching my hands because your hands are the servants of your thought. And if you want to see what you're thinking, just watch what your hands are doing because it's your action. Your thoughts slow down into action. And so every time I started to steal something, at first I couldn't even stop the behavior. I just watched myself do it. And then I was able to start to go, oh, yeah, I'm doing it. Oh, but I can't stop it. And then I was able to go, oh, I want to, but still can't stop it. And then I was able to go, oh, I want to, and I can intervene. And it was my mindfulness practice. And that's actually why I wrote my hit hands. ended up being a hit years later. But it was about my hands and watching my hands and one of my first mindfulness exercises. So you were were ad-libbing this. Like nobody had taught you mindfulness. You just kind of came to it on your own? Yeah. I was just trying to, you know, necessity is the mother of all invention. And so I tried to come up with exercises that helped me overcome very strategically the problems that I was experiencing. So for panic attacks, for instance, um, I used to have a meditation I made up where I was on a very turbulent ocean. Nobody told me what panic attacks were. I had no idea what was happening to me at 16 at boarding school. I could feel them coming on. If you've ever had a panic attack, it feels like you're dying. I have had. They're awful. Yes. But I could feel them coming on, and I'd go to my room, and I would 
get up in a ball and you'd you know, be physically paralyzed and I'd be crying. And I learned to do this meditation where I imagined I was on a very stormy ocean. I'd imagine myself sinking through the ocean, allowing myself to relax and the water would get calmer. I'd notice the color of the ocean change. I'd notice the taste of salt on my lips. I'd notice the rays of sunlight coming in. The further I got down to the sandy floor, it got calm and tranquil by then. And I would look up at the stormy, and it was in the distance by then. I noticed I was much calmer. This is a classic visualization meditation that you just made up, which, but you touched on, I mean, you, you came to something that people have been doing for millennia on your own, which is very impressive. What was interesting is later I learned about trauma triggering. I didn't even know about it until my late 30s. Nobody even I never even heard the words trauma trigger and like trauma and PTSD and those types of things. Um, and one of the methods they use to treat trauma is to get your brain back online, is forcing your brain to use different parts to process. So sight, smell, color, touch forces blood back in those other parts of your brain. So what I was instinctively doing in my meditations was imagining the salt, the smell of the air, you know, the colors. And I was forcing blood back into those parts mm-hmm. of my brain to get my brain back online, which is wild that intuitively I was able to do that. But I wrote my book, Never Broken, because I think we all have these internal resources. If we're willing to look inside of ourselves for answers instead of constantly outside of ourselves for answers, we come up with ingenious stuff, and we're all capable of it. It's nothing special about me. It's just that I started writing at such a young age. I had developed a practice of going inward and looking inward for solutions. Did it, At some point, did you take formal meditation lessons, or do you have you been just running on this, uh, on this stuff that you kind of generated for yourself? A lot of it was what I generated for myself. My aunt, Stella Vera, was a transcendental meditation teacher, and she taught me transcendental meditation. I did it off and on over the years. Which is, just let me explain that, the mm-hmm. folks, for transcendental meditation is where you use a, what's called a mantra, mantra, which is a word you repeat to yourself mm-hmm. silently, often a, tr- a Sanskrit word. Mm-hmm. And just repeating that to yourself silently in your head can stop the kind of obsessive, nattering, chattering mind and can be very calming. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm just jumping in to define the terms. Yeah, yeah. So and she taught you this. She taught me that. And the type of meditation I do now, I like to call it paying attention because meditation isn't a word a lot of people understand or they have connotations with it. Absolutely. Uh, and it doesn't have to have a theological connotation. Absolutely right. I literally just call it taking a brain break. Sure. And Again, if you want to be the architect of your life, if you want to be the driver that's behind the wheel of your life and you're deciding where you go, you have to develop that relationship with your observer. So you have to get rid of the static. You have to get rid of believing every single thought that comes into your head. You have to create that little bit of gap by being the observer of your Mm -hmm. thoughts. And so a mantra or what I do often is when I meditate, I just count. I'll do one as an inhale, two as an exhale. So you're counting with the breath as it comes in. Uh-huh. Again, this is, I mean. And it's, it's like giving a dog a bone. Absolutely. So you tell your brain, yes, go chase yes, this bone. Yes, yes, you're going to yes. count to 20. <laughs> and I'm going to observe myself counting to yes. 20. And when you lose and get lost in your thoughts, you start come back again. to what number yeah. you think you're at. Make yeah. it up. Or you can start again. Mm-hmm. Or start over. The whole point is just to be observe and be curious because that is a state of mindfulness and of being present. And for me, I started with my hands, and then I was like, oh, what else can I play with? Every time I walk upstairs, I'm going to be really present. I'm going to feel the stairs under my feet. I'm pretty certain you learned, you learned to be mindful throughout your entire day. And then you start being able to cut those puppet strings mm-hmm. of your conditioning. So at 18, when I was like, oh, I'm addicted to negative thought patterns. I'm addicted to negative behaviors. If my brain is naturally addictive, can I get it addicted to positive behaviors? Mm -hmm. 
And I thought that it was. And so I just started habitually forcing myself to do what I called my antidote thought. This is one of the modules I have up on my website where I would notice anxiety. I would force myself to go, what was I just thinking? Like, what was my brain just telling me? It was telling me some lie. Like, let's say it's, I don't know what I'm doing. And I would start to get panicky and have high anxiety. I'd go, what's the truth? It's not that I know what I'm doing because I actually don't. But the truth is I can figure it out. I'm tenacious and I can figure it out. So when I would have an anxious feeling, I would track the thought. I would see what the lie was my brain was telling me. And then I'd tell myself the truth. And it has to be the whole body truth. It can't just be like something you wish was true. It's That doesn't work. And for me, the truth was like I am capable of learning and I will learn more today. And that calmed my anxiety down and helped me rewire. And then I got addicted to that thought. And that started creating resilience. That started creating a tenacious attitude which is a very a much better thing to get addicted to. And if you've read Dr. Judson Brewer's work, which I just came across recently, and he signed on as my scientific expert for my little humble website, which I'm blown away by. So he explains these little exercises I developed when I was homeless on um, from his standpoint of why they work scientifically, which was amazing. Um, Let me just say Judd mm-hmm. is a friend, and, and uh, Judd is one of the premier yeah. neuroscientists in the world uh, uh, looking at what meditation does to the brain. He's also yeah. an expert in addiction, not for nothing. Mm-hmm. He's got a great book out recently the called The Craving Mind. Mind and as a previous guest on this podcast. And he that, that he's signed on to what you're doing actually gives it— uh, I couldn't believe it. Gives it a lot of heft. Yeah. Um, and I, I just can't say strongly enough that you came up with stuff— out of great suffering and necessity at age 18 as a homeless kid that is now actually like legit and and can be used by regular people with some confidence that it um that you know Dr. Judd Brewer says it's a it's a who's you know not like some sham doctor he's a real guy <laughs> he's a real uh, guy uh, Yale uh, trained uh, now at the University of Massachusetts Center mm-hmm. for Mindfulness uh, head of uh, research there yeah. uh, also a great guy um so that that's just amazing to me As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. So tell us a little bit about where we can find these meditations you're talking about and what they Mm -hmm. are. So I believe that to be happy is a side effect. People always want to figure out how to be happy, but it's the side effect of a lifestyle. And I believe it's the side effect of having harmony. So I like to use analogies. I'll use the body as an analogy. So if your life is a body, you have to have tone in every limb. If you only have tone in your career limb, in your atrophied in your intimacy limb, or your atrophied in your parenting limb, or your atrophied in your physical wellness, your emotional fitness, 
you're going to have unbalance and you're going to be uncomfortable. You're going to be anxious when you're facing every other aspect of your life. And so what are you going to do? You're going to go focus on the limb that you're strong at. I'm just going to be a workaholic. So for me, I knew I had to be a balanced human. And that meant I had to get an education in every other category of my life. And so I took years between records, much to my label's chagrin, because I was like, I don't want to look back on my life and go, my art is my best art. I want my life to be my best work of art. I'm serious about that. And I was willing to walk the talk and take as many years as it took to learn how to get a grip on other topics and to get tone on other limbs. So my concept is eventually going to be something called whole human, where I help give people inspiration, education, and then equip them for being able to get tone in the limbs that they feel are more atrophied in their lives. But what I did was start with a very specific limb. I started with emotional fitness because I think learning to discipline our minds and curate our thoughts is the gateway to being able to be mindful in every other vertical from parenting to, you know, every other thing that we're going to be doing. Where is this doing. stuff available? Right now it's on jewelneverbroken.com. And right now there's four modules up, a gratitude practice. Um, paying attention was the first one, showing people how easy it is to meditate or pay attention or take a brain break. Um, and then I have, I think, three other modules up. And then Judson has an article uh, sort of on each one and the science of them. And then I go in depth. Uh, so you can see a very short video. And then if you want to get a little bit more of training or some stats or some science behind it, you can. So do you see, I mean, you've got a lot going on. You're, you're a musician. You've got a movie uh, coming out um, on the Hallmark Channel very soon, which we will talk about in a second. And now you're doing this stuff around mindfulness and and whole and being a whole human. Do you see in part of your future and 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 forgive me if you don't like this term, but as moving into kind of like being a self help guru, a, per, a personal um, mental fitness trainer in some way. I believe in wisdom, and I believe in advocating for wisdom. It's what I've always tried to do in my music. Um, when I look at where culture is headed and what technology is doing to cause disconnection, and as I watch anxiety rise as an epidemic. Um, And I look at where I am as a human, which is a mom with a five-year-old that wants to be at home more, that wants to travel and tour less. But my message hasn't changed. But how I want to deliver my message has changed. I want to be touring less. I'm not as interested in touring. I'll always do music. It's a passion for me, and I'll keep doing it. But I want to be able to build this mindfulness platform, not so I can go on the road and be a speaker and some self-help guru. I have no honestly desire to do that. But there's people out there like Judson Brewer and amazing people, Dr. Kim John Payne. As a parent, I can't recommend him highly enough. He has a platform called Simplicity Parenting that I highly recommend. Um, So I'm going to be building out. I'm working with companies to build out corporate culture. I'm about to partner with Zappos, building out culture because I believe as entrepreneurs, companies can help solve social issues and add value to their entire network of employees because every employee needs to understand how to be whole human to even to show up to work better. And if we can also offer that as tools to people's consumer base, to the consumer base of any large company, and then we can create networks like my fans have where they start to look at each other as a resource, we can start making some impact and some change. Oh, and, so that's and happening? Your fans are talking to one another about they're this? They're amazing. Yeah. yeah, they call themselves the everyday angels. I've always encouraged them. I'm like, don't idolize me. It makes me uncomfortable. And I'll be knocked off a pedestal at some point, which I have no interest in. Um, but you can be inspired. But you have to live the life with me. I'm on a journey, and I'm exploring, and I'm going to make mistakes, and I'll talk to you about it. I'm I'm flawed. So I always led with my flaws. and. I asked them to start answering each other's problems. I was like, you guys have a whole community here. Ask each other for help. Speak up about it. Like, take, you know, the shame away from it and start talking. 
And so what they do now is a friend of a friend, a fan, Michelle, just lost her lifelong partner. And my fans set up a calendar and they grieved with her. And so they go out in two day watches and they go sit with her, you know, where she lived and cook for her and keep her company for that really intense grieving phase. And another fan of mine, her dad, who isn't even a jewel fan, went into surgery. But all my fans sent him flowers and balloons and filled his whole room up and you know, people are very willing to find family groups that are based around values. And I have hippies, gays, rednecks, you know, every kind of fan you can imagine under one roof because they have a single interest, which is living an authentic life, whatever that means to them. And it's a tolerant but highly diverse group. That's really interesting. Um, I'm just curious getting back because you, you led off this interview with this really harrowing personal story. Mm-hmm. What is your relationship with your parents today? My dad and I have a great relationship. I forgave him the day that I left when I was 15. Forgiveness isn't something I think a lot of people understand fully. I think they think forgiveness means condoning behavior. It isn't. It's not a gift you give somebody that hurt you. It's a gift you give yourself that sets you free. And carrying hatred around your your heart is like burning your own house down to get rid of rats. (laughs) It's like, why would you do that? Um, But it doesn't mean you get a relationship back. So I didn't think I'd ever have a relationship with my dad again. But he got sober, and he said, sorry. Sorry's nice. It's a great and amazing healing thing to hear. But it doesn't mean you get a relationship back. Changing behavior and earning a relationship back um, is what my dad did. And it's extraordinary to be, you know, a man in your 50s who was abused as a child to be awake and sober and say, I didn't want to be an abusive parent, but I ended up repeating the cycle I was raised by, and I need to learn how to forgive myself, and I need to ask my children for forgiveness. Wow. That's an incredible thing my it dad is. did. I'm it very is. proud of and him. And he's a reality star now? Accidentally, yeah. My family got discovered. He's on a show called Alaska, The Last Frontier, and it's a show about homesteading um, and the way I was raised by uh, pioneers. And what about your mom? I don't know my mom since 2003. She came back into my life when I got a record deal. I'll leave you to do the math on that one. Um, It didn't work out great. And I didn't know the truth about her until about 2003. And I haven't seen her since then. The truth meaning that you You kind of have to read the book to like, it took me about 350 pages to kind of describe the dynamic of that relationship. But uh, it was a difficult relationship. And uh, I didn't believe her love in the end to be sincere or real mm-hmm. and that was a really heartbreaking thing because cool. you grieve the loss of the fantasy you had about yeah. the person and then you have to grieve the loss of accepting who the person actually is yeah. and losing that person that sounds incredibly hard it uh, was incredibly hard and uh that's where one day i just thought my mind had been shattered i was probably 33 years old i realized i was not only broke but i think pretty much in debt and I had to rebuild. Even after all the music? Yeah. So at, at 33? 33, yeah, before my pop album came out, which one of the biggest musical risks I've taken was going pop. But I was like, yeah, hey, plenty of money in the bank. I can take any risk I want. Not the case to come to find out. Um, what happened to all the money? Yeah, you have to read the book. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, gone. Uh, so I hope it was fun. <laughs> I didn't spend it. But... Um, I realized when I ended up canceling a tour because I was really broken. Like, it really, really hurt. Everything I'd been told in my life was pretty much a lie. And I had to start figuring out truth from fact, from fiction. What were my thoughts? What were things that I was told that weren't true? And again, I turned to mindfulness because I didn't trust therapists. I wasn't talking to anybody about anything that happened in my life. And I looked in the mirror and I was like, oh, 
I remember this Joseph Campbell allegory. I don't know if you remember the golden statue allegory. No. Joseph Campbell was very shortly. It's a golden statue. Warring Village comes in. They cover the statue in mud so they don't know the value of the statue. They, they don't steal the statue. But it stays encased in mud, and everybody in the village for generations forgets it's a valuable statue until it rains one day and it's revealed as gold. So I'm going through this really difficult period in my life, which nobody knew I went through when I was about 33. I'm broke. My mom isn't who I thought she was. I had to reprogram my brain. It was a really dire situation I was in. And I looked in the mirror, and I remember that allegory, and I was like, oh, I'm not broken. A soul isn't a teacup. It isn't a chair. It, it can't be shattered. I remain whole at all times. I exist perfectly at all times. I just have to do a very loving archaeological dig back to my whole self. And so that's what I started doing. I started writing down adjectives that described me at times in my life when I could remember not being hurt, when I could remember what it felt like in my body. And I described that girl. And I was like, that's my map. That's who I actually am. And anything that isn't that isn't me, and it doesn't belong to me, and I'm willing to get rid of it. And that meant getting rid of a lot of thoughts, a lot of habits, a lot of behaviors, and acting in accordance to my values. And so writing down my values, once again, which was something I did when I was younger, actually, going every day, I'm going to do a self-audit at night and go, did I live these values? These seven things, you know, did I live these values today? And if I didn't, I made an amend, and the next day I strove. And it's something, still a practice I do, and with my five-year-old, you know, the other day, he did some, you know, some behavior, you know, that five-year-olds do. I can't remember what it was, but I was like, you know, life is like this forest, and how do you not get lost? Your compass is your values. And so we've started listing his values, and, you know, every day he goes, Mom, we should add that to my values list. It's really sweet, <laughs> you know, and it helps me parent because I can say that isn't one of our values. One of our values is honesty. Did you feel that that was honest? You know? I, I, I'm it's, taking it's a good notes over tool. Here. Good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah with a two-year-old, uh, <clears throat> I'm not sure. Her values include um, <laughs> eating my French fries and chasing the cats. Um, <laughs> in our remaining moments here, I'm mindful of the uh, the fact that you have a busy schedule today. Let's talk a little bit about, you've got this movie that's airing Sunday night, right? Yeah. Tell me what it's called. You asked me, you told me earlier, and then, of course, my brain's yeah. like a sieve, and I've been unable to not pronounce <laughs> the names of your right. songs or your last name, so I'm not going to try the movie. <laughs> Don't try. It's okay. Um, it's for the Hallmark Mystery and Movies channel, so it's a separate channel from the Hallmark channel, okay. um, and it's called the Fixer Upper Series, and then it's airing Sunday, the 2nd, I believe, April 2nd. Yeah, coming up Sunday, um, and it's called Concrete Evidence. It's a series of nine movies. This is the second movie. You don't have to have seen the first one to enjoy the second one. Uh, and her superpower is her intuition, which is why I took the role. For somebody who's building a mindfulness platform, this character once didn't follow her gut, and she paid for it. And she's willing to say, I'm never doing that again. I will follow my instincts, come hell or high water. And so that's what she does, and she ends up solving crimes. And have you done a lot of acting prior to this? Not a lot. I was in an Ang Lee film in my early 20s um, and got a lot of high praise for that and thought I wanted to pursue two careers simultaneously until I looked at people that had done it and realized they went through a series of about five divorces. So <laughs> I decided not to pursue both at the same time and to give myself time to, again, try and be a whole human. Um, I didn't want to be more famous or more rich. As fun as acting was, I was like, I need to learn how to be a good person more than that. But these TV movies were really easy for me because they let me meet my goals as a parent because it's three weeks. I get to be creative, learn something new, challenge myself, but still keep my son with me and still be home in three weeks. So That's great. I mean, yeah. But they're long days, 18 and 9. I didn't realize how long the days were yeah. when I signed on. But, yeah, you can do anything for three weeks. Yeah. Where do they shoot it? <laughs> in Victoria, Canada, Okay. Yeah, on Vancouver Island. Oh, I've been there. It's beautiful. It's very pretty. 
For people who want to learn more about you and and uh, uh, check out your book, just give us the full download mm-hmm. of all the stuff you've got out there that we should go look for if we're intrigued after having listened to you. Sure. I have a book out. It's called uh, Never Broken. When did it come out? Uh, in 2015. Okay. So it's out on paperback right mm-hmm. now. Uh, and it tells you my life story and then tells you how I overcame them. I just And then in the back, it sort of has my 20 axioms that I developed and lived by. And then people said, do you actually have real specific exercises behind those 20 principles? And I, I do. They are all based on exercises I did. And so that's what started me to create the jewelneverbroken.com website, jewelneverbroken.com. And that's the one Judson was kind enough to uh, sign on to me with. And you can find your music on Apple Music or Spotify or I have anywhere. a folk record out right yeah. now called Picking Up the Pieces. When, oh, oh, is that new? Uh, it came out with my book. Okay. Yeah. Such a pleasure to sit and talk with you. Yeah, I'm a big fan of what you're doing. I've seen your pieces. You're really great at articulating and making these sort of difficult, you know, large topics very palpable and very understandable. And that's a tremendous skill. And I've actually shared them with friends to kind of help them get a grip on sort of an introduction to this. So well done. Okay, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please make sure to uh, subscribe, rate us. And uh, if you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests uh, we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter at Dan B. Harris. I also want to thank heartily the people who produce this podcast and really do pretty much all the work. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. Uh, I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.